everyone, I'm Yumi Kendall. And I'm Joseph Conyers. And welcome to Tacit No More, a podcast where we are no longer silent, asking the questions that need to be asked and saying the things that need to be said about classical music. Tacit No More is an optimist's playground and landing pad for positive discussions about our belief in the power of music to better humanity. And we will invite voices from all sectors to inspire us in the work we do on and off the stage. Joe and I have been friends for nearly 25 years and have over 40 years between us as professional musicians. We've had the best of conversations. Would you join us? Well, welcome everyone. It's great to see you all here. Thank you for being here. We're so excited for you to join us for our first in-person recording of our brand new podcast, Tacit No More. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. So this is fun. We have no idea what we're doing, just for the record. Um, as Yumi likes to say, we want to put a microphone to some of the great conversations we've had over the years. And um, the idea of a podcast, I think I've always had it in the back of my mind. I think it was in the back of your mind. And um, we decided to make it happen. Yeah. And tacit no more to be able to discuss and talk about issues uh, in the industry where sometimes it doesn't feel so comfortable to talk about. Yep. (laughs) But we wanted to create a space where, actually, I felt alone a lot of the time. I was wondering, are we the only ones who are wondering these questions? Or am I the only one who thinks about these things or am am concerned and out of the love of what I get to do and want to um, have a place to speak about with other people who want to also see positive change in our industry? And then we just kind of decided, well, why don't we just like hit record and then invite folks into the conversation so we can hear your thoughts and Absolutely. our guests. And um, yeah, the gates are wide open, um, no holds barred. And um, we've already heard some really wonderfully provocative questions from you. And we will do our best to address them. Yumi, hmm? may I ask a question? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we? <laughs> I've just chatted a lot. Yeah, Your fine. turn. It's good. Yes, yes. So we're excited to be here on the campus of the University of Maryland at the National Orchestral Institute, NOI. I'm used to calling it NOI. Um, in the Gildenhorn yes. Hall, which is where we are now, which is part of the Clarice Center. Uh, so a big thanks to NOI, a big thanks to y'all in the audience, a big thanks to Richard Servo, the Woo-hoo. king of NOI, <laughs> <laughs> to the amazing crew who's been fantastic in helping us uh, record this podcast. So yes. thank you so much. We're re- really excited to be here. Well, what we thought we would do is first um, give a little bit of background on ourselves individually and also invite Richard to explain a little bit about NOI more for our listeners as well. So we'll first sort of do a brief intro. Um, Some of my cellos have already heard a little bit about this, but um, I've been a cellist in the Philadelphia Orchestra for 19 seasons. Um, And I'm just so pleased and grateful and honored and excited that this is my career and calling. Like, I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, In the midst of, let's see, it was 2010, that the orchestra went through a chapter 11 reorganization, a bankruptcy. 
and it was psychologically traumatizing for the institution um, and for many musicians. I, the morale was really low, and I, I felt helpless. I felt like I didn't have any way of being productive, other than playing and practicing and playing on stage, but I'm so used to having a way to participate or contribute or any anything, and there was, I had no control, like we had no way of helping. And I, I took this feeling and I took it on my feet and walked to the Barnes and Noble and looked in the book section, because I was like, we can't possibly be the only industry that's going through struggle. Like what do other companies do when their employees are having, experiencing low morale. And in the book section, all these red books on power, leadership, authority, um, you name it. And uh, there were two books I read. I highly recommend them. One was by Adam Grant called Give and Take. And it's about givers and um, how, givers and takers, if you were giving and giving and giving. Often givers are burned out and they're at the bottom of the success ladder. And guess who's at the top of the ladder? It's not takers, meaning people who just take and scrape, scrape other people down. And givers are also at the top of the success ladder. And Adam Grant, this author at Penn, at Horton, he was asking, what is the difference between the givers at the top of the success chain and at the bottom of the success ladder? And he found that those folks who were most successful were what he called engaging in otherish behavior. Basically the oxygen mask concept where you take care of yourself first so that you are able to take care of the people around you. And so the givers who are very successful are able to do a balance of that. And the other book was uh, called uh, Drive, The Surprising Truth About Intrinsic Motivation, What Drives Us. That was, that was by Dan Pink. I emailed both of these authors because one of my best friends is a professor and said, oh, authors love when you write them. I got a prompt reply from Adam Grant saying, um, that group of students from the Positive Psychology Center was coming to the Philadelphia Orchestra concert two weeks later. Total serendipitous coincidence. And I ended up meeting all of them. I ended up, go they invited me to go to Penn to help debrief the concert experience for those students. It was their first time at a symphony orchestra concert for many of them. And it turns out that this class, this course is for working professionals looking to reinvigorate their professions. And I, I was up there like in the class and I was like sweating and nerve. I didn't know what to wear. I mean, I did a totally different place than I'd ever been. Very intimidated, but so inspired and engaged by the questions we were, they were asking. I found like a second home. I, I applied to the program. I got in and I, had a, I have a master's from Penn now. It was a one year master's hybrid program. And uh, that is like another layer of why. And I found a kindred spirit with Joe all the years. And um, this podcast is kind of a manifestation of these professional loves um, because I love so much what we get to do with music. And I believe so much, and now with this social science data behind it, how do we create healthy organizations so that we can better implement and better enact our, our missions as organizations? And as individuals, how can we also create that for ourselves if we're not in an institution, but we have an individualized career, an entrepreneurial spirit, whatever that might be, but they're all levels of this. That's my 
that's my, briefly my why. That's a long <laughs> way of my why, actually. But Joe, tell us, tell us more about you. Yes, um, so we both come with um, our own different credentials for positivity oh. in the space. Yumi, as she just told you, has a master's from the University of Pennsylvania in applied positive psychology. Me, <laughs> my blood type is B positive. That's my credential. <laughs> I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. Savannah, Georgia is home. And uh, I feel like I had a very siloed life early on because one part of my life was very much part of the church, um, a traditional black Baptist church right between two housing projects in town. And then my other side of my life, which is music and education, was at a, um, a very kind of elite private school um, that we attended. For, the, for a long time in my life, those two aspects of my life were separate, not realizing they were forming who I am today. And um, I think what was great about the school was the school was very encouraging with me going into music and uh, pouring in my heart and soul and becoming a musician in an area where it wasn't necessarily supported. That's one. And this, this is a profession that, of course, we all hold to the highest regard. We love music. Um, we sing music, we play music. It's part of our DNA. We listen to it all the time, yada, yada, yada. If you're like me, you really listen to it all the time, that kind of thing. And then um, with my church upbringing, which we were there basically every day of the week, uh, one of the questions of like, what is our purpose it was always service. How can we help people? So we were always in the community. If folks needed things, we were trying to help. Um, we just tried to provide things. We had opportunities. Um, we had resources. We wanted to provide those opportunities and resources to other people. That's that simple. And the other thing, musically, growing up in gospel, which is a big part of my musical roots and upbringing, that was a world where when to become a member of the choir, you didn't have to audition. You don't have to audition to be in a choir. You just, you want to sing. You just get in the choir and you make a joyful noise. <laughs> God accepts all in the choir. So, and that was very much part of my DNA. So how does that relate to this? Because our space can be so, I'm going to use a strange word, maybe because I watch, I'm, I'm knitting this, I watched the show Naked and Afraid, because... For some reason, I'm just really into this weird survival stuff. And I'm going to use the word constricting, because they talk about these snakes all the time that they find and then eat. Oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. But in our profession, I feel like it can be quite constricting on who we are as individuals, because we are supposed to conform and be with the whole. So if you have new ideas, if you have even new styles and musical taste is not celebrated in our space. It's actually shunned and looked down on. It's amazing, and now I'm going on a little bit, but it's amazing. I just think about all the great gospel music that I heard growing up and how it's still, it's music. It's great music, but when I'm in school, I, there was no connect, there was zero, like not even like kind of because all we were studying was Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, because that would make us better musicians. 
when honestly, given my own backstory, I feel like it's the diversity of our experiences which makes music better at its whole. I mean, at, at, at the whole. So, um, so that's why I wanted to be part of this podcast um, because sometimes instead of being shunned, we want to have a platform where we could be comfortable just saying the things that need to be said. And now we're tacit no more. <laughs> uh, saying things that need to be said, and particularly in our professions. We're where we want to be. Um, and we hope to also be, and I think this is really important, a mouthpiece for those who feel like they don't have a voice because they're still trying to make it. Um, to talk about some of these issues is really hard and very difficult. That, that, is, um, that is why we're here. Can you share your, the story about... Oh, sure. The... Um, uh, so I'm, I do a lot of work with young people. I also, I mean, I, I guess we didn't, I didn't really talk about myself and the, the things that I do. I play bass <laughs> <laughs> in the Philadelphia Orchestra with Yumi. I'm in the orchestra for 13 years. Um, and before that, I played in the Atlanta Symphony for a very short stint. I played with the Grand Rapids Symphony for almost four seasons, and I also was a member of the Santa Fe Opera Orchestra for four summers, which was an awesome experience. Um, uh, I teach at the Juilliard School, so I'm, now I'm running this through the stuff to get to the story, because <laughs> I teach at the Juilliard School. Uh, I am the, the Director of Artistic Development at the Boston University Tanglewood Institute. Uh, I'm also the founder and vision advisor of an organization called Project 440. And we are a unique organization in that we use music as a tool or as a lens um, by which we teach the life skills needed to thrive to high school students. So what's unique about our program is students do not have to play an instrument. Uh, we literally use their interest in music as the window for them to actually see and envision the world that they can be in and be a part of. We're really excited because we created a curriculum using that creativity to help them literally develop these uh, interpersonal skills, project management, and the main course of uh, Project for 40, students have to do a service learning project, so it's a project in their community. Um, so they learn project management, they learn um, but how to budget because we give them seed money to do their projects. Um, so these young people really develop agency and realize that they can be the change that they want to see in the world, particularly in a lot of environments where they feel like they may not have any agency or any power to make change. And the reason, the, 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 the um, uh, how can I say, the genesis story for all of this was um, we were in southwest Georgia my um, dad is from a town, Bainbridge, in southwest Georgia, and we were driving by, and we were definitely in a community where there were not a lot of resources, and there were these kids playing on a porch, and my mom just made the fleeting comment among one of those kids could be a genius, an Einstein, and no one would ever know. And that was kind of my aha moment. Y'all, the cure for cancer? <laughs> Um, the, 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 the best musician that who's ever lived could be in a neighborhood that surround us every day. And I find it very disheartening to say the least that society allows us to basically neglect these um, uh, 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 facets of society um, 
And to that end, as a musician, again, with my own upbringing, how can I use my music as a tool for service? That's very important to me. So um, playing the music is one aspect of the work that I do as a, as a human being. If I could remember as a good bass player, that would be cool. I feel like if I get remembered as a good person who tried to make the world better, that would be cooler. And that's just kind of how I roll. <laughs> um, yeah. So this is, this is the essence of, of our sort of podcast identity is how can we use our music to make the world a better place because we just love playing. Yes. Just, I love the way cello feels to play. Like, I just love it. So the process of that, plus the outcome of wanting to see positive change in the world, all of it is just this collective joy and opportunity. And this is where NOI comes in. And actually, maybe this would be a good time um, we could invite uh, Richard up to talk about the connection about these um, concepts with with NOI and give a brief intro. Would that be okay? Great. Let's welcome Richard Servo to the stage, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Richard. So please tell us about this magnificent program that I've been had the great privilege of being connected to for two years. You mean a lot longer. I went here when in 2020. Oh, wow. Yeah. You went, you went I'm here an, I'm an NOI alum. I mean, 20, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> 2000. <laughs> 2000. 2000, when I was 20. Got it. Yes. I talked about some of the memories of that time with my students, but I'm an alum, and then ever since... Um, yeah, been a while, but Richard, we would love to hear from you about NOI. Sure, I actually just got very nervous for some reason sitting between both of those, <laughs> like, like between two huge mega suns of the orchestra world here on stage. So um, It's a sandwich. It's a, you it's could a, be the peanut butter and jelly if you yeah, want. Which okay. is, yeah, the best part. <laughs> the best uh, part. So um, I'm Richard Cherubo. I'm the director of the National Orchestral Institute and Festival here at the University of Maryland. And NOI, as we call it for short, uh, started in 1987 and had its first summer festival in 1988 and it was really founded to be a pre-professional training program for musicians on the thresholds of their career. And uh, it started as a three-week festival and lived that way for a number of years until about 2008 or nine, some, somewhere in there. And we expanded um, significantly by adding another week and a half. We brought um, into our curriculum elements of chamber music. We brought into our curriculum the unconducted chamber orchestra work uh, with folks from Orpheus Chamber Orchestra to really help develop leadership and listening skills in the festival. And most recently, we've expanded again when we appointed Marin Alsop as our music director in 2021. And um, with her leadership, we started a conducting academy and a composition academy. So we're sort of now active in three major elements of music making in the orchestral world. And I think there's still more work to do, but um, that's kind of the brief overview of who and what we are. Well, it's an amazing program in this beautiful facility. Clarice is amazing. On this beautiful campus, University of Maryland is amazing. Yeah. So um, uh, one of the things I shared with my cello students was remembering when I was a student at NOI, and I had no way of knowing that three years later, I would be at the front of the Philly Orchestra cello section playing a lot of the rep, 
that I got to learn at NOI and also the rep that I hadn't yet learned, but I learned how to learn at NOI in a similar schedule um, that reflected the professional orchestra schedule, meaning week by week. Um, and I was so grateful for that time and so encouraging the students to, you know, water yourself, your future self, because we just don't know what kind of opportunities will be awaiting us. And we will be, our future selves will be grateful for having taken on that opportunity and really living it to the fullest. And so I'm just very personally grateful to NOI for that exposure to excerpts, to excerpt class, to the actual playing time together. It's just a blast. And having been able to hear and coach the amazing orchestra, which is amazing, y'all sound great. <laughs> um, I, I, would, I would be uh, remiss if I did not mention that one, you're doing a recording project this year, is that correct? Yeah, we are doing a recording doing, project this and, year. And it's not your first recording project. That's right. Yes, uh, and I feel like one of your recording projects did very well recently. Yeah, that's, a, that's <laughs> an easy one for me to talk about. So we started um, in uh, 2015, I believe, a partnership with Naxos Records to record an album of American music each summer. And our third album, which was done with David Allen Miller, who's our conductor this week, uh, we recorded um, John Harbison's Fourth Symphony, Carl Ruggles' Sun Treader, amazing piece if you don't know it, and Stephen Stuckey's Second Concerto for Orchestra. And I was in a hotel room, uh, and I had not been following any of the music world news at that point. And David texts me and says, did you see the news today? <laughs> and I said, I don't know what, what you're talking about. And he said, we just were nominated for a, a Grammy in the category of Best Orchestral Performance. Woohoo! <laughs> And Amazing. some of you have heard this story, but I'll just say one more thing, which was when I quickly got online to see who the other nominees were that year. It was the Seattle Symphony, the Boston Symphony, the San Francisco Symphony, and one other, Pittsburgh Symphony, and then the National Orchestral Institute and Festival. And I thought, I, maybe, maybe it's a mistake, actually. <laughs> maybe someone messed up. Here we are with, you know, four of the greatest orchestras in the country um, to be nominated. And I think it was just really a testament to the hard work that all the students uh, put into, uh, into these recordings. But also, um, I think it said something about the repertoire that we were recording because, um, and maybe this is a nice segue into some conversations about the orchestral world. Mm -hmm. All of the recordings that came out that summer on the other orchestras that were nominated were like, the complete Schumann symphonies mm -hmm. with San Francisco Symphony and because we haven't heard those before Nielsen mm -hmm. Not, one nope. two and four with Seattle Symphony and Shostakovich another Shostakovich recording with Bob. so it was just very very much just run of the mill standard repertoire and here we were with three pieces that uh, I think we're maybe saying something about about the future and uh, at least about performing works by living composers. Amazing, very, yeah, very much a testament, not only yet to um, the wonderful program, but just to all of it, how it's run, the facility, everything that makes NOI what it is. So thank you so much for allowing us to be here. Yeah, thank you both for being here. Thank you, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank Thanks you. again, Richard. So it was great talking with y'all. I always say, and I feel like I say this too much, but it just happens with age. It's really exciting speaking with young people. And from the conversation that we had earlier this week and just trying to get some ideas about what we might discuss this evening, uh, I was thinking it would, be, it would be so fantastic if we could have y'all's voices in the room of a lot of these orchestras when we're having conversations. 
for all kinds of reasons. One, because you ask the obvious questions. Two, to remind folks in a lot of ways why we do what we do. Sometimes I can get lost in the shuffle, lost in the madness of life, lost in the madness of contract negotiations and um, trying to figure out boards and administration. And that's actually one of the, the questions that was asked. And I remember being your age, I didn't think about a board or a contract or, or the, the admin. I was just thinking about playing the orchestra. I was gonna play some Schumann, Beethoven, Nielsen. Harvinson. <laughs> um, uh, and so and these things never crossed my mind. So it was great to get questions just about how our orchestra structured and how do they run. And so we thought we would broaden the scope of that. So the lens of that, the question, the questions were also, how does an orchestra work? How is it even a business? Also so that we can, from the outside, or before entering an orchestra, if that is a goal, um, or an, another nonprofit performing entity, so that I can help. And so we need information so that we can anticipate how we can be productive, contributing members of whatever musical entity we might be a part of, or create ourselves eventually. Um, and I, that framing was just really beautiful to hear for all the reasons Joe just said. Um, I can give a quick rundown of sure. some of the yep. structure and then we have, so um, the basic triumvirate of a nonprofit performing, I'll just say an orchestra, um, as a board which is responsible for the fundraising um, and running, yeah, the fiduciary responsibility. They make decisions about how the money will be used. Um, and please chime in if I'm... Yeah, the I'm board is everything. Kind of <laughs> so the board is the, fund, the fundraising arm. The management and staff are the ones who organize the concerts and make decisions about programming. For, for our musician lives, it would be deciding who, what, um, what artists are going to be on stage with us, conductors, composers, um, guest, guest artists to the repertoire, education, concerts, and events, um, marketing and PR, that kind of thing. Um, and then the musicians are the obviously the performing body. And within the musician body, most orchestras have committees where the musicians intersect with the staff and sometimes with the board to discuss artistic questions, to discuss an education. So we have, on the, in the Philadelphia Orchestra, we have an artistic committee that will meet with the Vice President of Artistic Planning to go over the following season, like two seasons in advance to understand and, and I outline like, oh wait, there's a Friday, Friday evening concert with a lot of brass heavy stuff and then a Saturday morning family concert that also has like all Bruckner or something, like their chops are gonna fall off. So how can we balance that programming a little bit better so that the brass are able to play more evenly, the subscription concerts, for example. That's just one minute example of intersection. Um, there's an education committee. There, there's a tour in Philly. There's a tour committee. So there are different media committee. and a media committee. There are different ways that musicians can um, volunteer their time to help further um, the mission, essentially. Um, but that's basically 
from an orchestra nonprofit perspective, those are the main bodies. Yes. In a nonprofit organization now, in Project 440, or I don't know if you want to go there. No, I mean I, I can talk about which is my, my my nonprofit experience. One thing I just want to clarify when I said the board is everything for the folks listening, saying, "Well, what does that mean?" I'm on the stage working every day. I'm not trying to diminish anything that musicians <laughs> do on the stage. <laughs> I'm not. Please don't come after me. Don't come after the uh, our DMs, which, by the way. Um, uh, at Tacit No More on Instagram. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't don't come, come after us, but the board is a very powerful body because it's the board that actually, the board in a lot of ways hold, they hold the charter of the organization and carry the, the organization and the mission of that organization forward. Um, in the orchestral world, what has been developed are contracts that the board must uphold so um, and the staff must up, uphold so that Okay, we can and musicians. All, and musicians, right. So we can play in the same sandbox and all, all that fun stuff. Um, so the board does not go beyond that or, or, or I mean, they're, they're, all, all this stuff is negotiated. But all I'm trying to say is that the board has a, a lot of power to decide um, the institutional direction um, for an organization. And uh, hopefully what you do and I, on your board, what you have are a bunch of people really excited about music. That's, that's, the, that's the idea. A bunch of people really excited about music with the resources to be able to um, uh, support, uplift, and make sure it's maintained and has a future, which is why it's an arts nonprofit organization. And just so you know the difference between a nonprofit and a for-profit. For-profit, the boards, I mean, I don't know if you all actually know this. It's, it's for-profit, the board, the, the money is shared. That's why it's, it's profit the, the, um, uh, at the top. Nonprofit, the boards don't make money for being on the board. The money is poured back into the institution. So some people say nonprofits can't make money. Absolutely they can. <laughs> but the, um, uh, uh, the funds are, are poured back into the institution to, uh, to help it uh, go forward. Yes. So the next, we have one or two more chunks that we want to address based on what we heard the other day. The other one is the very essence of why we are tacit no more. It revolves around the unspoken norms and the unspoken sort of etiquette of being in an orchestra. Your eyes go big with that, Joe. You want to dive in? Yeah, well, because there are lots of ways to look at this. And this is some of this is just advice for young musicians. And also, in, in some of those questions, it actually shine um, uh, a light on how few resources there are yeah. for when one is in a substitute situation in an orchestra or is a new member of an orchestra and is dealing with awkward awkward or institutional questions, weird questions <laughs> uh, that might exist where there is no agency on the part of that person to actually do or say anything about it. Um, uh, again, this is a safe space. We're, we're the voices here. So even one, one of the questions even came up like, well, what if I get like a substitute job and I'm playing with someone on the stand who doesn't know the music, but they're a member of the orchestra? What do I do? That was a question. It's a good question. And to me, this is one of those questions that come that I would have received from a student if they, they play. And that could be for a number of reasons. Why, why someone may be un, underprepared or whatever in that situation. It was also, an, or as in through the lens of an untenured, as that an is untenured correct. member, but basically the power, when there's a power difference, 
that's the essence of the question. Yumi Kendall, I, I'm just speaking frankly because I, I don't know anything one can do in that situation. I don't know because what you definitely <laughs> don't, want to, don't want to do is start talking to people about it. You know, I'm sitting next to such and such. And they, <laughs> they, 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 I don't think they, did they get the music this morning. Like, I don't know what's going on. Um, that you don't want to do because they could, might ultimately say, oh, that's my wife or that's my something like that. I mean, who knows? You just, so you mean, given your, your um, wisdom in, in the space <laughs> of systems, um, do you have advice? I know I have advice. Well, go ahead. My advice is... Keep your mouth shut. I said, find a good friend or okay. a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> that, in, in that situation, there is nothing institutional that one can do in that situation to address that situation. That being said, that opens up a question maybe about other things, but I'm just, as, an, as a point of advice to a young player, um, uh, a trusted source where you can vent certain things, but that's how I, that's, that's my kind of professional advice in the moment. You know? I would agree with that. Um, a friend of, and a, a good friend or a therapist are good things anyway. <laughs> right. um, if, if, or a friend, it doesn't cost as much, but, <laughs> but, um, but actually, I was just thinking about this, and we were reviewing mm -hmm. the questions last night, but um, there's actually a part of me that thinks there may not be that much of a difference in what I would do, like when I was subbing, versus when I became a member. Because we're not in a position of critiquing each other on stage. We're in a position of creating music together. And that doesn't really change whatever our power play difference is. Now, of course, there are HR issues that come up. Like, if this is an HR issue, you're being mistreated or something else. That's yes. a totally different, that's different. issue. Absolutely. That, and then you go to HR, you go to the manager, you go to whoever they provide. That's a, so we're talking about two different things. The onstage, or right now what we're addressing is sort of that onstage, the awkward dynamic of... of um, of having colleagues on stage who are behaving in an interesting way or that you wouldn't expect or smell bad or whatever. Um, but I, I ask myself when I see a colleague um, struggling in some capacity, I ask myself, what might this person be going through that I don't know about? We had a long time, a colleague who had a very long time medical condition it was actually cancer, and so the person's arm was... So they, we don't know a lot. So I try, to first, I try first to be compassionate um, because I can't change them. We can't change other people. So that's the first part, is what might this person be going through that I don't know about? And, I, and then the other question is, what can I do with myself to maintain the integrity of the music and my contribution to sounding awesome on stage. Uh, I can practice, I can prepare, I can look at the score, I can listen to the second oboe part across the stage there and if somebody's next to me or in my section and it's not sounding so great, I can focus on something good. And Joe, we didn't do one good thing. <laughs> we, we can wrap that in. We'll, we'll, we'll get that in. But you okay. finish your thought. Well, that was my thought was actually our experience is what we pay attention to. That's such a beautiful way to look at the situation. 
because it gives us compassion for our colleagues so that others might have compassion on us, might we find ourselves in the same situation. Um, uh, which is why you still bring your artistic highest standard possible in that situation. And yeah, y yes, knowing that you, who knows what, is, is, what, what could be uh, going on with that person uh, you, you may be sitting with. And um, yeah, I, I, just, I just love that, that, that compassion and grace and um, uh, uh, fitting into the whole as far as what we, what we try to contribute. Yeah, the yeah. two, the compassion for the other person and then make sure I'm contributing. Correct. I'm practicing. I'm, I'm going to stay my focus, stay the ground. Should we do yes, one good thing? Yes, let's do it. Okay, so one good, we did one good thing with the cello section um, and it's related to what I just said, which is um, we ex what we experience is also what we pay attention to or vice versa. And this is taken from positive psychology from social science where um, it's been shown that when we... Um, when we are grateful or experience a positive emotion, gratitude, serenity, exuberance, joy, enthusiasm, contentedness, a sense of peace, um, a gratitude, a, a sense of deep meaning or purpose in our lives, um, it's been shown to bring connection and openness. And particularly those are important to us as we are creating this platform with all of you because those help us talk about challenging things and approach things together with openness and care. So one good thing, and we did this with the cellos, everybody going around and introducing ourselves, where we're from, whatever that means to us, and one good thing. So something uh, I'm grateful for recently, um, my toddler and my parents just arrived this afternoon from, from Philly so they, we could spend some time together. So I, I got to go back to my relative's house and, um, and see, see my daughter after a couple days away. So it was just really nice to, to regroup that way. I'm grateful for that. Uh, and I guess my one good thing is, I would have to say, I am about to embark on a new adventure tomorrow in which case they're kind of two good things. I'm focusing on one. One is also very good, but the other one is tell us. very Just good tell for us. no reason. <laughs> uh, one is we're, we're doing a commission, a world premiere of a piece tomorrow uh, for a string quintet. Here? Here, right here tomorrow night, right here on the stage, <laughs> which we're really excited about. So that's fun, and bringing new music into the world is always a wonderful and fun and exciting experience. And. I am also going to, for the very first time, attempt <laughs> to play the second cello part of the Schubert Cello Quintet. And I, <laughs> and I, what I love about, the good thing is, well, actually it's kind of a terrifying thing, but I'll leave that part out. Uh, <laughs> but the good thing is there's, there's uh, not necessarily a lot of really, 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 really great chamber music written for the double bass. We are left out of a lot. So to be able to work with my colleagues on this masterpiece in an environment that's so much fun and so safe is um, fantastic. And to play this really, really great music um, on the bass everything up the octave. 
Uh, but it's fun and blending with the sound and being in that, that tessitura of the instrument. It's just a lot of fun. So I'm having a blast. You sound amazing. I totally would forget that it wasn't the second cello. <laughs> I mean, it, it's... Well, you're very kind. It's amazing. And also, Joe is responsible for ex helping expand the repertoire with this commission. Um, it's going to be fabulous. So I'm really looking forward to tomorrow evening. So um, this one good thing, actually, we begin every podcast conversation with, unless we forget, in which case it shows it up in the now. middle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, based on the beautifully done anonymous survey, there were lots of questions in the house. And I guess given the, given the fact that we are tacit no more, uh, a lot of things might want to be said. So let's Let's open the floodgates and see what happens. So we would love to hear from you, and then we will rephrase the question just for the editing, but please. Wow, that's a great question. I'll try to encapsulate it. Um, has music always given me such joy? Or has my studying positive psychology expanded that joy? Did I essentially capture that? Okay. Um, oh, that's a great question. You know what, when, before you mentioned positive psychology, my mind went to, oh yeah, I remember when I wanted to quit in eighth grade, um, because I was in eighth grade and my mom told me to practice and I was like, I'm not going to do what my mom tells me to do, I'm going to stop. Um, but as the Olympics, or I forget who on the Olympics says, but never quit on a bad day. That's how you keep going. Um, that was the first, before you finish the question. So I'll address that. I will say I've always had immense joy. And I already knew that what I was doing felt like my calling. Like I felt like I'm, calling being, I feel like what I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Career is, I'm being paid to do what I want to be doing. I kind of feel like I'm on a trajectory to what I really should be doing, but I'm, I'm in the area. And a job is, I just need to make some money to pay rent. I just need to get, I need, just need to get the job done, right? So there are different, there's social, um, there's a lot of data on the relationship to our work at each of those levels with meaning and purpose and all of the positive emotions that we feel when we have a career or calling and the connectedness that we feel to our work when it doesn't feel like work because it has such, I'm just so grateful and joyful to be playing. Um, what positive psychology has given me and studying it has given me a community and a whole world, a whole other amazing world of support, amazing people, like amazing humans. So think about all of the amazing humans that we get to play with. The positive psychology world is like a bunch of positive, like it's a bunch of really, really positive people. Like be positive. <laughs> <laughs> it like it sort of self-selects. Like if you're wanting to study it, there must be some connection to wanting to study why, what makes us happy. Or and it's, optimism is not about happiness. It's a, it's not a, an emotion. It's a, a, a mental sort of state of being versus like pessimism or cynicism or skepticism when I just need more information and then I can make a decision. Um, but all of this has given me amazing community and vocabulary and deep understanding about why and it has made my convictions stronger and my why, like Simon Sinek, like what's your why? Like what's your purpose? That has made my why 
much more crystal clear. It has also made me very open to changing my why. We talked about this on one of our episodes with Vijay. Um, episode two. For episode two, um, talking about this, like what your purpose, your sense of purpose. So um, that's a very long way of answering your question. I would say, well, what I just said, I'm not going to repeat it. <laughs> does, that, does that kind of address what you're, okay. Thank you for that beautiful question. Um, we would love to hear from others about anything that we've addressed so far. Yes, my, is it, oh, just to tell your name on we can edit that one out. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just going to chime in really quick on that question. Yumi, I can say your name. Uh, I was going to chime in very quickly on that question. And, um, and that was just to say, for me, I don't know. Music is literally like part of me. I can't explain it any other way. DNA. It's, it's totally in my DNA. It's like almost deeper than DNA. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's. And what's strange is I'm a pragmatist, so at some point in life, I was like, well, maybe I can't be a musician. I'll still love music. I'll absolutely still love music. But I'm also a pragmatist, so like if I can't make money doing it or can't support myself, right. then maybe I need to, but I will, it will always be part of my DNA. And I will say it's been my biggest motivator. Um, and it's external things in life, these different passions in my life, I always say, fuel my purpose. So playing in an orchestra, playing with the Great Philadelphia Orchestra has been great. That fuels the purpose. Working with young people fuels the purpose. Being able to share what we do so it's not just me, but about offering opportunities to other people fuels that purpose. It makes me want to do it more. It makes me want to do it more. It makes me want to do it more. Someone was asking me today, how do you have so much energy? Because literally it keeps fueling and I, I have to keep doing these things to celebrate the music, but also provide these opportunities for others and share, share, share this, this really fantastic thing. So, yeah. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> So the question, if I understood, um, I'll try to encapsulate it. Um, when one is a new member of an orchestra or a new community, how do you find a kindred spirit so that you can have true conversations about things that may be uncomfortable to talk about with other folks um, and creating those, those meaningful relationships um, to help your professional life flourish in that setting? So finding a safe space or creating the safe space um, first of all, find Joe. <laughs> Once you find Joe or your Joe in orchestra in your professional setting, you're good. So actually, that's actually across the board um, in other industries. It often is, and Joe also said, like, find a friend or a therapist. But, um, but finding a kindred spirit who you just sense has similar values or maybe a similar experience. So it might be other folks who are new. Um, that was often how, and in, that, that is often how those friendships develop is by those shared experiences. Um, there are certainly some official avenues, but I don't think that's what you're asking about. There's um, an ombudsman or there's a, a committee that might actually help facilitate a kind of mentor type relationship that then, then guide you to another person for a more friendship type relationship or a kindred spirit or as we call in positive psychology, an Aristotelian friend, someone who will help you grow your values and grow yourself in mutually, um, in mutual ways, 
in that professional setting, but it won't happen on its own. You'll need to water that garden and actually search and ask questions of other people, um, not in a pointed way, but in a friend, you know, in a friendly setting. I don't know. How would you, how would you answer that, Joe? Depending on what it is you want to talk about. I think, again, your, your, the questions from y'all always make me think about the larger picture. And depending on what it is, personal things with people, that's something else. Uh, but institutional things, where you feel like you have a voice and want to have something to say, I would almost challenge the industry and say, it would be fantastic if one day we have a space where anyone can say what they want without feeling like they would be ridiculed for having a different or new um, idea. And that to me is as musicians who are coming up in the field, the more you can think about that, you might have to actually become that agent of change that can create that space. Um, to basically eradicate the idea of this idea, uh, this idea of a, a podcast called Tacit No More, because there's no reason to be tacit. Does that make sense? And um, make us obsolete. Obsolete. Uh, and so that that's kind of my challenge to y'all to be able to do that. But to, to Yumi's point, it is about finding a kindred spirit, someone you can talk to, and maybe and that's how things get organized, and that's how things get changed. Because what you might do. Is, say something, and they'll be like, oh yeah, I was thinking the same thing, I just didn't want to say anything. And then you cite someone, yeah, I was thinking the same thing, I just didn't want to say anything. Because you, honestly, sometimes, and may not ever feel this way, the loudest people could be the minority in the room. And just because they might be really loud, it might dissuade us from um, voicing our own opinion. Or as, as Adam Grant finds in his research, comp Confidence does not mean competence. <laughs> yeah. It does not necessarily mean competence. <laughs> Hope that helped. Another anonymous question from <laughs> any person who is in the room. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. So I'll say, I mean, to, to uh, rephrase the question is how, basically, how can we make the space more inviting for younger, well, y'all are younger, so your, your peers, <laughs> uh, when you're in high school, uh, high school students can be more involved and feel like the orchestra is a safe space. That's a really big question. Because it's one that folks have been trying to figure out for a long time. And even in our conversation, when you and I were talking about this, we were thinking about some of the things that happen at other concerts that make it so much more comfortable for people. Cell phones ringing, people yelling, screaming, that kind of thing. And yeah, could we ever accept that into the concert space? Do you want to talk more about, because otherwise, I mean, I'm, Go ahead. What, I was, what, I, what I will say to that is it, I think it's a multi-layered approach because I think, and I hate to even say it in this way, but I think you will all understand. There is, in a lot of the music we play, almost a sacredness in the silence. And being able to get folks to actually just appreciate that. 
Because in life, there's so much noise and there's so much stuff. But unfortunately, because of the way the world works and what everything's about louder, I mean, like, everything has to be about, like, Times Square. I think about Times Square because we drive through it every time we go to Carnegie. And I'm just like, this is ridiculous. But everything, everything is Times Square. Everything has to light up. Everything has, has to be fast. Everything has to be loud. And that's, how, that's what's going to keep people's attention. And what's neat about what we do is, it, is music allows people to reflect. So, and that's almost a muscle that has to be worked because <laughs> if people aren't used to it. So I say it's a multi-layered question because I think in, through education, through music education, even our education system, what can we do to celebrate and instill that kind of appreciation for the things that can bring us solace in that way so it's actually about reflection. So that's one layer. And then the other layer is there can be concerts where people can do whatever they want. I mean, and I think, and I, 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 oh my gosh, I'm going to be, people are going to so come after me. Oh my gosh, they're going to come after me because what they're going to say is, I'm not background music. That's what they're going to say. I can hear it already. You mean it's very loud. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm not background music. And the thing is, I don't know what these experiences look like. I don't know. But what's great is to have the conversation to, to decide what they do look like. Is, is it a morphed experience where... There's talking and interaction, and then a performance, and then more talking. So it's like a, a, a through flow, does that make sense, um, uh, of an experience? Um, because I think, I mean, what instrument do you play? So this person plays the violin. I assume if, if one is playing the violin and they're playing a beautiful, let's say, the adagio from the C major sonata, does that work? Um, then having like noise on top of that may not be appropriate. But is there a way that there could be an interaction or interactivity with that? So maybe in, in some settings where it could be appropriate. Does that make sense? So we actually have to have these conversations and create the space. But what we can't do is say we can't do it. Or we say we don't want those people. Or that's not what we do. Or we have so many other things we aren't going to spend any time on addressing this thing that addresses our future um, because we just want to keep doing things the exact same we've done it before. So I hope that helped, uh, it was a long answer, but I, it, to me it's lots of different layers of what the experience can be. Because to me, I feel like what we do and what we can provide to people is an experience. That's what, that's what music kind of has, has been, it's like this experience. Like we talked about that also in episode two with VJ. But like, what, are we expecting as performers, but what is the audience expecting and how are we sharing these experiences? You and me have spoken long enough. This is, this is inspiring. That's a really great question. Um, and from the social aspect of it, um, I remember when I was growing up, and this is kind of the pipeline question that you were talking about, music education. Like the more we surround ourselves with other musicians in our community or find other friends who we go and play with. Like I, on I think Saturdays, at least, or maybe it was every Saturday or is a Saturday every month, we did chamber music. My brother plays violin. He's in a group called Time for Three. Um, they won two Grammys. <laughs> That's awesome. I remember awesome. when he called and <laughs> I was in the restaurant and I like blew the roof off with my like scream of joy. Um, but my, my, my older brother plays violin. We did a lot of chamber, we did Suzuki. So there's a lot of group class already and shared studio experiences. So we would, our parents just got everybody together a couple times and we just had shared experiences that way. We didn't actually go to concerts a lot. Um, 
we didn't go to concerts a lot, but we created our own four family get-togethers, and we just played. We played capture the flag, and then played a little mini recital for our parents and had dessert or something. So there was more. F this was when you know before high school age. Um, so there's just more social element to that. Um, but the other thought that came to mind about the concert experience was. I went two places. One is all the research, some research seems to suggest that the increased depression and anxiety in, in young people can be linked to like overuse of social media and phones, phone use and et cetera. So, and this came up because of Yannick, you know, berated the audience for the phone ringing in the Bruckner Symphony at just the most profound moment Twice, twice in the, in the same, same spot because we went back to the movement and then they clearly didn't know the donut rule. But anyway, the cellos know about the donut rule. Sorry, <laughs> but they, you know, so the most prof why would we not want to put our phones away and like give ourselves a spa experience? Like it's nourishing for our souls to get to experience live music. It's so nourishing. And so almost to protect our own space, our own nourishment, that's the phones away conversation. That's a different kind of social experience. It's, and in contrast, we do have, there are experiences that we, the orchestra, for example, when we play an encore or something, when we actually say, please turn on your phones, share this with your friends, like tell everybody like this is it. Um, but the experience is one of, nourishment like the audience also makes a choice to be there and be grateful for this shared experience with the other 2,000 people in the hall whom we may not know but we have a, this communal experience with this this music that transforms us as listeners as sponges as musicians whatever our participation might be so I have there are many different angles to that really beautiful question so thank you for, we don't have answers but I'm sure and I'm sure you have your own thoughts too and I'm sure this has also opened up reactions in each of you which we would also love to hear I don't know go to DM go to us. DM Cast us no and more. tell us and we'll we'll like read a bunch out or something but we would love to hear what your reactions are to this kind of framing of the questions I think it would be awesome I'm just gonna in that question segment by saying that's why I feel like there's hope, a lot of hope in what we do because I feel like at some point the world is going to say like this is too much. It's too much. We can't be AI'd. We, we have to go back to simplicity. <laughs> we have to go back to sounds made by things we created with our hands um, and, and, just, and just be able to appreciate these communal experiences and have silence and quiet in our lives so we aren't rushing. I actually, I, there's a part of me, maybe it just makes, maybe because I'm an old? optimist. Oh. And old. <laughs> <laughs> and old. <laughs> an old optimist. Um, uh, maybe you're old, I'm older. <laughs> maybe it's because of that. But I, I do feel like there... And that could be the thing that, I mean, particularly with y'all's generation, like will in this time, will uh, society start to seek that out in droves just because they want, they want to have that kind of experience where it's not Times Square all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Overload, sensory overload. That's right. Yeah. Are there, what other thoughts, reactions? Yes, we've got a couple, yeah.
what would you do as a young person if the powers that be are not making the changes that should be happening in the industry? You make a show called Tacit No More, <laughs> a podcast called Tacit No More, and you invite people to uh, share their thoughts on it. Um, no, seriously, that's a good question. I think about this. That's a great question. I think about this all the time because I think about my students. Because my students tell me they want to have a voice. But uh, different from your question, I'm actually trying to use my voice to speak for them. So I think it starts with the, the initial and the easiest thing that anyone always would say is just make sure your voice is heard. And if you can get to the channels where your voice can be heard and then amplified. Because I get it. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, mean, I was once a young, a, a wee lad in Savannah and wishing for... <laughs> a wee lad, a wee lad. <laughs> wishing for things to be different in the world and feeling like um, I didn't have a lot of agency. But because of that, it might actually um, make one actually become quiet and say like, oh, I, because it's too overwhelming. I think about that even with the kids, I, uh, the young people I work with in my nonprofit. They feel like they don't have a voice until you, we make a space where they, their voices can be heard. And because of the folks around them, the teaching artists, the staff, our board members, their voices can be amplified for change in the world but we have to hear the voice. So honestly, if there are folks who will not listen, keep, keep, keep speaking shouting. the good speak and find the folks who will listen, who do can you, then amplify. amplify do you voice. have some ideas that you would like to say? No, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can always DM, like we would love to hear like the actual content of what you're thinking, like what do you see that has inspired this question? Because there's usually a why behind that and something is going on that um, is propelling that beautiful question. Are you, so what kind of changes would you like, would we like to see in the orchestra professional world? So how much time do we have? <laughs> this is great. It's a big question. That's a huge. So there's episodes two through. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, that is part of the reason we started this podcast. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's honestly, it's to amplify your voice. So, and I, I mean, we could also turn that question back to you and say, what do you want to see? And how can we talk about that in a safe space? So we can see if we can actually come up with a solution. Does that make sense? Um, uh, I mean, we do have, we might have our own personal ideas and thoughts about what could make things better. Um, auditions. Auditions could be one. Like big, that's, a, that's like a couple seasons. That, right, we talked about, we that, touched that, on that a little bit. Um, that's industry wide. Which then that, then a whole host of things come from that institutional culture. But I'll go even further up and just saying, what is our role as musicians in society? What is our role? Is it literally, I mean, I'm gonna to try to say this as, as, as neutrally as possible. Is it to play great concerts because we have to lift up the voices of whatever and play this music because that is what we do? Or does all of that serve a purpose? 
And that's, and that's but for me, well, okay, it's not a long list. It's two things. So, <laughs> well, it could be and. Was it, and, right. It and, doesn't have and. to be either or. It, like, it could be that be, beautiful you. goal and something else, or it could just be that beautiful Thank you for goal. that distinction, because that's absolutely it's true. It's an and. Um, yeah. That's also. Uh, that's how I see it. Uh, no, absolutely. No, okay. I, I agree a thousand percent. Um, In other words, is playing a great Beethoven or Harbison work it? What's the point? <laughs> yeah, so when I think about the future of what we do, I'm all about, I mean, then maybe this is the American inside of me because I start thinking about capitalism and like, um, uh, and I start thinking about value and how can we create value for what we do? Because if I, if I start to think globally about our industry is we have defined what the value of what we do is to society. And we've been annoyed when society tells us they may not value it as much as we value it. So to me, that's a, a problem that then needs to be addressed. To me, it need, I'm talking Joe Conyers, I'm speaking for myself, but that's a problem that needs to be addressed because if we can create the value for our audiences in a way where they appreciate that value, they will then pay for that, pay for it. Does that make sense? Well, I, I start, now I'm, now I'm on my education platform, but when I start thinking about what music and music can do in communities and education, people talk about funding for, um, uh, 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 let's say government funding. Oh, this is such a can of worms, y'all. I'm still gonna get in trouble. Why should there be government funding for the arts? Now, some will fund it for the things that we've talked about because it is a beautiful, wonderful thing, a tradition that's historic, is part of human culture and existence, and to preserve that is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. But I will tell you when there are communities that are just trying to put food on the table, educate their children, provide a safe space for their, for, for their kids so that they can grow up and be um, uh, responsible and functioning and, and um, uh, contributors to society. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna say it straight and it's gonna hit some people the wrong way, but a Beethoven symphony won't do it. So in that, in that idea of creating value, how can we use that Beethoven symphony to inspire? How can we use that Beethoven symphony to encourage and to educate and to unite and to create family and community so that we then create the value that people see and say, no, don't take away our orchestra because they do this, 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 this for our community. And that's the way I see it. So we have a lot of, like, a lot of, we have a lot of purpose here on this. On our on our platform here, um, but we would love to hear your, also what you would like to see kind of going back to what, um, what you were asking about, what your ideas are that you would like to see, um, because they are, you are the future, and we want to help create that with you or allow that to happen for you um, and create pathways for that to happen. Because we love it so much. And it's so exciting. That's, I mean, yeah, um, when people talk about the future of music, like I, there's all this doom and gloom when we talk about this as well. Um, but at, like when there's just so much potential 
because how much have we used our capacity in these other spaces to do these things um, that could elevate and shine a light on, the, uh, on this beautiful thing that we have, which is music inside us. This language where we don't have to use words, but how someone spins a phrase can literally turn the soul. And that's not just in Western culture, that's in every culture. Pretty amazing. Yeah. I think we might be at the end of our... No, this is too good. Y'all, this has been so fantastic. Um, uh, thank you for trusting us um, in this space to hold such a conversation. Uh, we want to hear from you. Um, not only do we want to hear from you, but tell your friends. Because <laughs> we want to hear from your friends, too. And... Um, we also want, yeah, we want to hear from you, not because we think we have the answers, but we want to see, we want to understand what you are thinking yes. and help connect folks who might have like concerns. Oh, we just heard from somebody over in, in uh, Washington State, and actually both of you just mentioned the same thing, you other person from Pittsburgh, and would you like to connect or through this space? Um, or we can create a topic that both of you can chime in on, but there's a sense of community and we can start seeing a sort of tapestry of ideas and a space for these ideas to come forward or your concerns or your, all of it. Um, so it's, it's, we have our experience, of course, but we also, it's about the space. And we're just so space. grateful for you to join us on this launch. You heard at the beginning of this, um, our time together this evening, you heard the beginning of our very first episode, that trailer, that will be at the beginning of everything. But we're so appreciative of you um, joining us in this journey. This is our podcast launch this week, yesterday, and, and today with you. And then I know that there's a gathering afterwards with... Cake and punch. Yeah. In the Spark Lounge. Game for cake. So here we go. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to the Clarice. Thank you, NOI. Thank you, Richard, for um, again giving us the space. We're we're really excited, as Yumi said. And um, I guess we will see you all, or you will hear from us, or we'll commune in some way. I'm gonna have cake I on, don't the know about you. <laughs> on the next episode. Thank you all very much. Thank you. <laughs> Find us on Instagram at tacitnomore and email us at info at Please share the show on social media and leave a rating and a review. Tacit No More is produced by Joseph Conyers, me, Yumi Kendall, Andrew Meller, and Lindsay Sheridan. Any views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not reflect any entities with which they are associated. In our next episode. Are we giving a performance to receive or are we giving? And it's something I speak to my students about all the time as well. I felt like when I started doing well in auditions is when I wasn't doing it for the people behind the screen. 
I wasn't even do, doing it for my teacher. <laughs> I wasn't doing, I was actually able to, it was almost like that moment was a culmination of all the work I had done to that point. And I had the opportunity to share that with a committee.